Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 388 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm tired. Recording this on Friday. It's been a week, Um, but I'm good. It's very fall. About to be Halloween time. Indeed. Indeed it is. We got an awesome email today from our (laughs) chief operating officer. Um, Uh. I we've. People probably know this, but Overdrive, the company we work for, is owned by Rakuten, and every once in a while we get executives from the parent company that come in. Sure, but our company is owned by someone who loves Halloween. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So we got this email that was like, hey, everybody, um, (laughs) next next week we have a bunch of visitors coming in, and that's code for like the executives coming in. It's like, so just make sure you're wearing your name badge, which I'm not doing right now, um, and keep your space clean and, you know, dress appropriately we have a very business very casual office but um but she goes except for on halloween don't let our visitors get in the way of your halloween spirit or something because we have um i think we're not supposed to say how many people work here we have several hundred people who work here and halloween is just halloween's big it's no joke it's so much fun Steve loves Halloween. Yeah, our CEO loves Halloween. I, I think I've told this before, but there, I swear to God, I'm not going crazy. There was a year where he walked around in like a gorilla outfit and had the head on the whole time and wasn't telling anyone it was him. And he's just... It's possible. Yeah, Steve loves Halloween. Steve loves Halloween. And this year's is a Harry Potter theme. It is a Harry Potter theme party. And we have... There's so many, so many cool decor things. I don't even want to talk about them because people, because I know people in the office listen. I don't want to give anything away. That's right. We won't. We can't give details just in case. You guys are gonna have to wait in like a few days. Yeah, to find but, out. But we're on the party patrol planning. We, we are. We are Whatever. on the party, party planning patrol <laughs> committee. Um, if you yeah, follow, if you are not on our in Twitter, Instagram at Pro Book Nerds, we'll be sure to post a bunch of stuff there. And also Overdrive's Twitter and Instagram. We'll have a whole bunch of, of stuff as well. So it's, it's gonna really be a fun. lot of Harry Potter costumes. A lot of Harry Potter costumes. I need to figure mine out because this month has been busy. Um, speaking of this month being busy, so this episode is an interview I did with Michael Connolly last week on Thursday, and it's about his new book, The Nightfire, um, but had some situation happen. So the library had an issue with the recording where about the first 20 minutes of it isn't there. But I think it's okay because... We talk a lot about, you know, this isn't a debut author. He's written 32 books, and it's the the whole Bosch series, and his most recent series of books is the Renee Ballard uh, three books that also has Bosch in it, and he's on The Lincoln Lawyer. And so a lot of the whole conversation can be picked up. Uh, like, honestly, you could just scroll to any part of this conversation and still get something out of it. Uh, so it's going to pick up kind of right in the middle where we're talking about character breakdown and where Renee Ballard came from and a lot of stuff. And then there's some audience questions that you, you can hear the audience and he gives some really good questions to that as well. So I want to keep it in. Um, I wish I had the whole conversation, but there's still plenty of goodness uh, from this. So and we won't have to worry about corrupted files because this is the last one we're doing live for a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was still, he was just a super down-to-earth guy, and it was really, it was fun. Th- these are books that before I found out I was doing this, I hadn't read any of his books, and since then, I've read three this month, and they're very, very, including his most recent one, The Nightfire, which just came out. 
Um, it was two days before the event, and I just basically stayed up all night. And sure. Yeah, very enjoyable. Yeah. And if you're a fan of the Bosch TV series, which is in like, it's I think it's in six seasons at this point, um, the actor who plays Bosch does the audiobooks. Oh, nice. I like so, that actor. Yes. So um, Titus, I can't think of his last name. Um, but if you're a fan of that man, you will enjoy the audiobook version of these books as well. So. Um, I kind of mentioned uh, people can get a hold of us on social media, but you want to tell them about our website and all that jazz? Since <laughs> sure, our website okay. is professionalbooknerds.com. <laughs> and email us if you want. At professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, man, we're professional. Very mm-hmm. professional. Anything else you think people should know about? No. I don't think so either. So... Happy almost Halloween, everybody, and I hope you enjoy this truncated interview with Michael Connolly on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. You know, in general, I don't know exactly all the details, but I, this is like my 32nd or 33rd book, and um, I would say only one time was I wrong about the ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's you when you know you've written a lot of books, when you say 32nd or 33rd. It is right. hard to write a book. Right. That is impressive. Um, you mentioned, you know, meeting frequently with detectives and having such a close relationship with them. and being able to sort of, I'm just imagining you sitting around a breakfast table, like talking shop and hearing them share these stories. But when you have either a draft one down or aspects of a case that you think are, are going through, because something that I love about your stories is they're very, almost like dragnet where it's just, the fa- you have a lot of like just the facts about everything that's happening. Do you kind of run those by people that you have relationships with and say, am I a going in the right direction here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I ask questions beforehand, um, and then I run things by, um, I have three detectives who, for the, for example, Bosch and Boward, they read those books. I have two lawyers that read the Lincoln Lawyer books. Um, you know, I'm talking about in manuscript form. Um, but I'm, another thing I do is a, a lot is I p- propose scenarios to them, like I'll say, I need this to happen. 
how does how do I get there within procedure and and they will give they'll shoot me ideas on how to do it and you know I, I have, there's a reason I have multiple people because not everyone thinks the same way and someone will give me I say I, I would do it this way and someone will say well, I'd do it this way and then I get to pick the one I think will give the most you know drama and and uh, momentum to the story when you're fleshing out characters you know you, you mentioned that you don't really do full kind of bios on them but is there something that you do whether it's like picking out a trait or um we were interviewing jojo Moyes here last week and she said she has this kick the dog test which is not as bad as it sounds she basically <laughs> says what would a character do if they saw someone else kicking a dog and that's kind of a define she never puts it in the book but that's how she defines them so is there something that you look at a person and say this is sort of their defining trait and, and flesh it out from there? Um, not, I don't think so. Not really. Um, I mean, I do like, I mean, but this is after I have the character, but I, I mean, I do like to have like a one word description in a, of a character in my mm -hmm. head. You know, so from the very first time I started writing about Bosch, that word was relentless. And with Boward, it was fierce. Mm -hmm. They're very similar words, but, you know, I wanted to have some kind of separation between the two characters. You know, and, you know, like the fierce, that came from the real detective. Um, you know, she just is, you know, tough and undaunted by a lot of the obstacles, especially a female has to overcome in the police department and going up against uh, physically bigger bad people. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you have to be fierce. And... Uh, so I, I do that. Uh, I don't. The kick the dog thing is um, that's interesting, but maybe I'll start doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna make it shoot the dog. Is that? <laughs> so. All right. Listen, I'm just gonna say this. There's no spoilers. But if you ever have anything happen to Renee's dog, I'm going to be very, very upset. Yeah. Right? In fact, if I had one critique of your newest book, I could use more Lola. Just like a little right. bit more Lola. Uh, I'll tell you, you asked like how like people vet, do I have people vet the books? And so um, the when I wrote the first draft of what was The Late Show, uh, I gave it to Mitzi Roberts, who's the real detective. And, um, and I, you know, I'm not a creative genius. So I, a lot of this stuff I don't think up. I get it, and I and my genius, if I have any, is, is where, it, where it goes and how, how, how to use it. And, you know, so the whole thing about Ballard getting off and going to the beach and surfing, that's what the real detective did. Mm -hmm. I didn't make that up. And um, so I gave her this draft, and she goes, you know, she gave me notes and all that, and she goes, but the big thing is um, Venice Beach is not a, you know, there's a lot of uh, shifty people in Venice Beach, and so she need. I had a dog, so that when I was surfing, I had a dog watching my stuff, and no one would go near my stuff. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a dog in the book at that point. So it was like, that's the kind of feedback I get. So Lola was born and, and put into the, um, to the books. I'm just trying to imagine. I have two dogs, and they're wonderful. But I'm just trying to imagine either of them like, sitting at attention the whole time if I were to go somewhere else, <laughs> just watching my stuff. Lola's a very good girl. Um, so has she, other than that, has, has there ever been anything that you put in there that irritated her where she's like there's no way I would do this especially because I mean she it's she knows that this character is based off her has there ever been anything that I don't want to say upset her but that she came and said Michael there's no way 
Well, in this book, um, Ballard crosses, a, a, I guess, an ethical line, a mm -hmm. procedural line. And um, she, she wasn't, like, upset with me. She got, but, you know, she goes, well, you set this up where it's, like, based on me, and now you have me doing something that I could lose my job for. <laughs> and, you know, I, and, you know, I said, I know, but I need, you know, I, I have to do this. I, you know, I, this is about the character that's fictional inspired by you but you know and I said do you want me to put a note at the end that the real <laughs> author's note the inspiration for this character would never do these things so, yeah. she, so she didn't say she didn't say yes she said no I get it mm -hmm. so um, you know but you know it, it, the the sexual harassment issues in the book are are you know it's a it's a sensitive subject and she has had she has faced it a lot mm -hmm. But I don't use her experiences because that could cause her issues within, you know, the people that have done this to her are still in the department. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I made up my own and, uh, you know, and that still becomes a sensitive thing because are people going to think that happened to her, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, you know, so we've had those kind of discussions, but, but she's never said, like, don't do this or uh, I'm angry about this or anything yeah. like that. I'm curious about, you know, you have, we've, talked a little bit about all these relationships you have with these individual detectives, but having based all of these stories in Los Angeles, how does the LAPD feel about this? This isn't like a leading question one way or the other, but how do they, have they ever said, you know, either, you know, thank you for shining a light on some of the great work we're doing, or I'm just, I'm curious if they've ever had any thoughts about they've, it. Uh, you know, they've been very welcoming to me. Um, you know, most notably, they give us amazing access for the TV show we make. And so, like, on the TV show, when they're in the lab or in the, um, the auto shed or the print shed, all these are all the real places. Yeah. They, they let us in to do these, even the morgue that we've been allowed into. So Bosch has been a really good ambassador, I think, um, because, you know, he, it doesn't show the LAPD as a perfect place. It's a bureaucracy, and mm -hmm. bureaucracies have issues. But at the end of the day, this is a guy who's um, relentless and, uh, you know, and undaunted, and and he's heroic in that way. And and the, I don't know, the powers that be there are smart enough to realize mm -hmm. that this this shines a good light on us in in a way. And um, you know, and they they I think they admire his dedication. They just two weeks ago they opened up a. Um, uh, homicide, a murder book archive. Um, mm -hmm. There's 22 different police department uh, divisions in the city, and each one has its own homicide squad. You know, Bosch worked in Hollywood. That was just one of 22, and there was no central thing for unsolved cases, which is really weird and bad, and and should have been addressed long ago. But finally, there's a central homicide archive that opened uh, two weeks ago, and I got invited to it. Um, and um, when I got there, I found out why they invited it, because they put over the entrance, everybody counts or nobody counts, yeah. dash Harry Bosch. Yeah. And they, uh, <laughs> but they, um, but they didn't ask me to do it, or, or for permission, and um, so they said, oh, <laughs> we better invite him to the ribbon yeah. cutting so he's not upset. <laughs> That's, that's, that's what I was going to kind of ask, because I imagine having that be his sort of his credo. 
they probably are very happy about that part. And obviously they are since they used it yeah. without uh, letting you know about it ahead of time. But it's very nice. Yeah. Um, this is a little bit of a broader question, but why do you think that sort of we as, not even just readers, but as like a society, love police procedurals so much? Because they're all over books, they're all over television and, and movies, and we seem to never grow tired of them. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't have a pat answer because there's so many reasons why, you know, myriad reasons why. But I think for the most part, it's about characters who are really involved in high stakes situations, mm-hmm. sometimes life and death situations. And, and, and we're looking for something about ourselves. We're looking into uh, how Harry Bosch deals with these kind of situations or Renee Ballard because we wonder how we will and we hope we would step up like these characters do and I think it helps reinforce things about ourselves things about fairness you know Um, you know Bosch's you know code is everybody counts or nobody counts and and I think a lot of people um, uh, hold that kind of basic doctrine of fairness close in in their own lives and so I think that's that's one of the reasons you know, and then there's just—it's a chaotic world, and these books, you know, take chaos and restore order when they find out who did it and how they did it, and mm-hmm. justice and, and things like that. But I could go on and on. I think there's many, many reasons um, for it. I'm just an example of it. I, I grew up loving reading crime novels, and when I had that moment where I said I want to be a writer I didn't say I want to be a writer I said I want to be a crime novel a crime writer mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do in, in very specific um, and, and so I've been a lifelong reader of this and I can't really explain why either mm-hmm. myself why, what did I see but I do know a lot of it was about seeing how characters reacted in uh, you know when the chips are down do they step up? Do they and um, and you know I think that's got folded into um, why I love to read them, why I like to write them, and and what's in my characters. From a writing them standpoint, I imagine starting off in the journalistic background really probably did a service to the way that you write these out. Like I said, there's so much detail and nothing is missed even just something as small as you know when the officers are you know maybe gonna take someone down or arrest someone just like where their hands are at or just like small little things like I have to imagine starting with the journalism side of things where the facts are so important probably helped yeah, a lot I mean I, yeah I'm, we would not be sitting here talking if I had not been a reporter first I think that has been a key to everything, and it was interesting that um, when I when I had that moment, that epiphany, I want to try to be a writer, and I told my parents that it was my father's idea that he said, "Well, go into journalism as opposed to like English lit or something, and you know, get a press pass and get into um, police stations and get into courtrooms and crime scenes and things like that." And it has certainly helped me. Um, over the years. I haven't been a working journalist in 25 years, but I still feed off of everything I saw when I did. Mm-hmm. I've seen you say that you're taking, going to be giving Bosch a little bit of a break from a novel standpoint. Is that true? Well, my next novel won't have him or Ballard. I'm going back to um, a character I haven't written about in 10 years, uh, the reporter named Jack McAvoy. Mm-hmm. He'll be in the next book. Okay. Uh, I don't have a I don't have a title for the book yet, but um, it's, uh, I'm almost finished it. 
Sure. You had nothing else going on, so you just figured you'd do that. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned growing up loving crime novels and anyone who has an you know between the books and you know doing the TV show and your podcast and everything else. I imagine you're extremely busy, but when you read, what are you still a big reader of this particular genre, or do you find yourself kind of getting away from it because you spend so much time in it as a writer? It's more it's more the latter. That that's the sad part about my life. You know, you you become a voracious reader of crime fiction because and then you want to do it, and then then you can kind of see the you know the man pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> You, you, you kind of see what, what writer you see the writers through the the words and um, so it it doesn't have the same kind of escapism and fulfillment um, that you know drew me to it in the first place so that's the sad irony um, so if I you know not that I take too many uh, vacations or whatever but I, I'll probably be reading non fiction mm-hmm. but I mean I do read crime fiction I mean I have to uh, you got to kind of stay abreast of what's going on and, and so forth. Um, you know, I write about Los Angeles and um, lots of people write about Los Angeles, so I'm always interested in, you know, new voices and new takes on this, you know, gigantic city. Um, and so, yeah, I try to... And then, of course, I get sent a lot of books to, to read and so forth, so I, you know, try to keep my hand in. Um, the other problem I have is having been a journalist where you're often writing on the run and so forth, um, I can write almost any time I could read. And so it becomes like, do I want to write or do I want to read? Mm-hmm. And then if you start reading, your guilt starts infecting um, <laughs> your reading, you know, and, um, and then that's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me so sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're... <laughs> Your books, you know, we talked about over what, 74 million sold, I think the number was at this point. You know, they've, they've brought so much joy to people all around the world. And I feel like people are always so busy asking you, like, what's the next book? What's the next thing? What part of the process when you're building out these stories brings you the most joy? Is it starting from square one? Is it hearing the stories from people that you're sitting down with? I guess, like, what part of the process are you happiest during? No, it's definitely the actual writing, you know, and it's not like really starting. Starting is very hard because, you know, you need 400 pages and you have none. Um, that's, <laughs> that's kind of daunting, but you, you get into a point where you have the, you're in flow, I guess, to, to use some terms I've heard. Yeah, to me, writing's about momentum, how to get it, how to keep it. And so when you have momentum and um, you're happy with what you're writing, that, that's like, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. Uh, you can be on a plane. I was writing on a plane today, and I, I wrote some stuff that I'm pretty happy with. And um, that's, to me, the best part of the whole mm-hmm. process of everything. I've heard a lot of authors tell me that they can't write on planes. I personally love it because I feel I'm stuck in a tube with nothing else to do. I feel yeah. like it... Like, those are the moments. Are, do you have to pull yourself away from the outside world to be able to write? Are you able to kind of do it wherever you're at? I can, I can do it wherever I'm at, but you, you know, it's preferable to be um, you know, in a bubble where you can't be reached. And that's one reason why um, you know, like I, I know you can now get email and so forth on planes, but I never sign up for that. I just mm-hmm. I look at a long plane ride as you know a day of work. I put an earplug so the person next to me won't talk to me 
that kind of stuff. You know, I'm not listening to anything, but mm -hmm. when they talk to me, I go like, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just want to be left alone, and, and um, that, that ends up being a good, good place. I've had some long plane rides this week because uh, I'm crossing the country and so forth, mm -hmm. and um, I've gotten a lot of work done. It's, this will end up being a, a good writing week, even though I've mm -hmm. been in whatever, five different cities. I, I told this story a couple weeks ago, but I made the mistake of I saw an author that I knew on a plane. They're a pretty big deal. I won't say their name because they had headphones on. And I did the classic. I was like, I tried to get their attention. All I wanted to do was tell them that I appreciated their work, but they didn't know that's all I wanted to say. So I, flashed, I said, are you so-and-so? And they looked at me dead in the eye and said, nope, never heard of them. <laughs> And so I learned my lesson. If I were to see another, if I were to see an author with headphones in, or really just any human being, it didn't give me the right to talk to him. But he, he was his right to lie to me. One time I was on a plane, and uh, there was another writer on there. Um, you know, it's, I can't think of his name offhand. He's a huge bestseller, and we never met. And um, and like he like introduced himself, and he was reaching across the guy next to me. Um, to shake my hand and stuff. And then, to my horror, he tried to get this guy to change seats. And it was like, I'm looking forward to about three hours of writing here, and now this other writer probably wants to talk about all the problems he has on the road and, and you, know, you know, commiserating and all this. And thank God the guy wouldn't change seats. It's probably good you can't remember Then afterwards, I shook his hand. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Oh. <laughs> So, speaking of writing, you also do writing on the TV show, Bosch. Mm -hmm. uh, does it feel different to write the stories for the screen as opposed to for the books? Uh, you know, with the exception of obviously being, you've kind of probably already written the stories since they're based on the books, but does, how different does it feel to kind of write it out for the screen? I mean, it's, it's way different because, um, and it's funny, most, most screenwriters I know who started as screenwriters have a hard time writing books. And then the reverse is true because, uh, you know, before I was involved in writing this show, I'd written, you know, many, many books. And um, you, when you go to film or TV, you lose the interior thought, which is the center of a book, you know? Like what Harry Bosch is thinking is why I think people come back and read, his, read about him. And then you write a script and you can never say what he's thinking. And that, that has been the biggest chasm for me to try to cross in my my script writing and I'm not the lead writer on the show so when I write a script it goes through him and sometimes the script comes back and I see a master at work who's made up for all my um, shortcomings as a script writer. <laughs> I understand what you're saying but I do think it takes some uh, kind of chutzpah to look at the author of the books and be like this isn't actually the, how the story should go. <laughs> You're right, but no, it's a different experience. I mean, it's really about dialogue, and I think I have a good ear for dialogue going back to when I was a reporter, and I think the dialogue in my books are, is good, but at the same time, it's so key in a script, and, I, you know, and, and I'm guilty of overwriting, overwriting and giving too, much, um, too, much, too many words and so forth, mm -hmm. um, and that's where... Um, I, it gets sculpted down, and I've never complained about, um, you know, what's happened to my scripts because I think they deserve what they get. So. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I want to kind of open up to you guys now and turn some lights on. Maybe I'm sure there's a lot of you, and you guys might have some questions. So, can you turn some lights on, maybe, so I can see. Yeah. All right. They're coming. 
They're coming with Please the hold. Magic of live events. Maybe. And then what we'll do, if you can just kind of be as loud as possible, and I'll, I'll repeat whatever you guys say so the rest of the group can hear. Um, tell you what, while we're waiting, I can see a hand. It's back there. Me? Uh, yes. Yeah, there you go. I was just wondering, you talked about getting advice from actual lawyers and detectives. Have you ever disregarded their advice for the purpose of storytelling? In, uh, oh, we? I would say, that was good job with the levels there. Um, have you ever disregarded any of the advice you've gotten from detectives or lawyers or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, because I'm really, uh, I want my books to be as accurate as possible. But I'm a slave to drama and momentum ahead of that. And so it's, it's a fine balance because I don't want anyone to read my books to go like, oh, that would never happen. Um, I want them to kind of almost be subconsciously nodding, you know, this must be how it happens. Um, but yeah, there's, there's been times in this book, um, I'll do a disclaimer up front, the, a Ballard has to get um, a search warrant signed by a judge so she can do a wiretap. And um, wiretaps are uh, one of the hardest warrants to get, and there's, very, there's several layers of approvals needed to get a wiretap uh, warrant. And if I went through all those in this book, it would be like 600 pages, and, <laughs> and, and 200 would be deadly boring. So I, even though my police advisors told me these are the steps, I cut like two of the major steps out. And, um, you know, just because, and then I did do an author's note on that. It does say at the end, uh, it's not so easy. Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that was something where I uh, um, avoided it. There are a lot of you. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, way in the back, I think you've got like red on, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. You're pointing yourself. Yes. Yes. Okay. How big of a jazz person are you? Yeah. How big of a jazz person are you? Um, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty big now into it. Um, I have to admit, though, when I wrote the first Bosch books, I wasn't, I didn't know a lot about jazz at all. I just, I like the idea of giving characters musical identities, and uh, I chose jazz because it went with the loner detective, the outsider. Um, and uh, so I, I was, at the time I was writing that first book, I was still a reporter, so I did my reporter thing, and I did research on jazz, and, and I didn't want to do all the obvious stuff. I wanted to come up with some obscure uh, artists that um, that Harry, who would know way more than me, would, would have found. And a lot of it was also, my father's music was jazz, and it was a nod to him. He was sick at that time um, and not going to be living much longer, so it was like a, a, a nod to him, a thank you, and so forth, to put some of his music in my first book. There's actually there's a line in this. It's not a giveaway of anything, but it's uh, jazz is better for you than news. And I was I like wrote it down. I was like that's actually very true, especially oh. nowadays. <laughs> uh, so right there in the yes. I have one question and one comment. That's okay. Any chance on a new uh, Lincoln Lawyer book? Uh, new Lincoln Lawyer book? Question yeah, mark? yeah, there is a chance. Now <laughs> 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 the. Uh, no, my plan is to do this Jack McAvoy book and follow it with uh, Lincoln Lawyer book. There, there's going to be a show on CBS next year based on the Lincoln Lawyer. It comes out in September. And uh, 
So, you know, wanting to always, always, always be promoting my books, I think it'd be a good time to have a book out as well. <laughs> so uh, maybe these people watching the show will, will decide to read something. Yeah. That's cool. awesome. Well, I... Um, it's, well, it's funny. I, I learned about Hieronymus Bosch in a uh, Western Civilizations class when I was in college. And then many years later when I'm creating this character, um, you know, I, I, I knew enough from my reading that this was going to live or die with character and never miss a chance to say something about character, and that would be including a name. And so I kind of did that metaphoric connection between the paintings which are generally about a world gone wrong and chaos and a murder scene. And then this guy would come and be able to read clues and be uh, very knowledgeable about what happened by studying a crime scene. So I called him, um, you know, Hieronymus Bosch, Harry for short. It's funny, when I've gone on tour in um, Holland where the original Bosch was from, I didn't know this when I called him Harry, but Hieronymus is the root name of uh, Jerry. And so every, every reporter would say, why isn't he called Jerry? And that was, that was always their first question. Jerry Bosch. Okay, uh, woman in the red, yes, yes. Are you Jack McAvoy, is that your alter ego? Are you Jack McAvoy? Um, I don't know what an alter ego is. I mean, the, of all the characters I've, written he's the closest to me and um, you know he's had a history that's different from mine but his view of media and his view of the job of being a crime reporter were mine um, so it's the, the you know that's probably why I've not written about him that much about every 10 years he comes comes up because it's, to me it's not as much fun to write about myself uh, I rather explore like somebody different from me like this guy Harry Bosch like how he thinks um, but when I do write the McAvoy books I write them pretty fast because I I don't have that step back like what would Harry with everything I know about Harry Bosch what would he say here what would he do when I write Jack McAvoy I just write what I would say and what I would do and it just comes out so um, I don't know if that means alter ego or just ba based on my thinking um, but he's definitely the character that's closest to me yeah, I mean, that's definitely my view. It's funny, I was um, on a podcast with Mike Lupica today. He's, uh, you know, he, this is a guy who writes four columns a week about stuff that people already know the ending of, and yet people read those columns. That's, that's quite a skill and quite a, quite a challenge, um, you know, which I have told him. Um, so, yeah, in all the newspapers I worked at, um, generally the sports columnists were seen as the uh, master writers and don't tell me is you, are you a sports columnist? Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, Ma'am? Um, Titus Welliver Bosch. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, yes. How did you go about picking him as Bosch? What were the qualities that you liked in Titus? Well, is that... Um, do we have to repeat? Or no, that was pretty good. Good luck. Okay. You guys are all doing great with the sound. Just great okay. work. Um, it kind of goes back to one of the earlier questions about um, moving to, from the, a book to a visual art um, and losing that interior thought. Um, the number one thing, the showrunner, who's the creative boss of a show, it's not me. It's a, we have a guy named Eric Overmeyer, um, who was the first hire, first guy I brought into this project. And um, you know, he said, 
this is a very difficult. I mean, every show, the the biggest choice is who's going to be the lead. But he said this is going to be more difficult than usual because Bosch is such an interior guy. The books are so interior, and we don't have that. We can't show that. So we need to find somebody who can really project um, his emotions of what you know, the baggage he's carrying, the the bad things he's seen, and so forth. So that was our mission, and I um, and I'm I'm Mr. Novice. I'm you know I'm a I write novels. I don't do TV, but I'm involved in all these uh, decisions. And um, we went to and I had seen Titus uh, play a guest role on a show where he was a vet with uh, PTSD, and he played it so well. He you know he didn't say I have PTSD. You could just tell this guy has something going on, and I I just saw it in his eyes. And like I don't describe Bosch a lot in the books, but um, and I don't really think Titus looks like the guy I've been thinking about for like 20-some years. Um, but I think he looks just like him on the inside because he has he carries that, that thing. And um, so I go to the first meeting. We have, we're given six weeks to cast, the sh- cast this character. And uh, I go into the first meeting, and the casting directors have um, about four pages of actors' names. And so I quickly look at it. And there's no Titus Welliver on there. So I was thinking, no, maybe he's like one of these life-is-too-short jerks that no one wants to work with. Um, (laughs) So we're going through this list, and I'm thinking, like, everyone here has worked on TV and movies for decades, and I've I've gotten none of that experience. So very timidly, I said, so what do we, we, I was trying to deflect in case I was saying the wrong thing. I said, what do we think about uh, Titus Welliver? And they said, we love him, but he's making a movie in Hong Kong, so he's not going to be here in the six weeks that we have to do it. So I was, you know, I was very, I guess I made a look that was very depressed. So they, the casting agents kept after his agents and said, like, doesn't he even come home to see his family or anything? <laughs> and, uh, and that's what happened. He came home and we got, and uh, he came in all jet lagged on a Saturday, and he had, uh, re, uh, worked on the part on the plane he had gotten uh, um, a scene to do and um, we brought in a, a really good actress to work with him oftentimes in these casting things it's just a casting director sitting in a chair kind of flatlining the other uh, uh, dialogue and the and the actor um, has to deal with that and we we bumped it up by bringing hiring an actress that we knew was a good actress to work the scene with him and he and he got the job right there I will give you guys a tip. I know your tickets came with a copy of the book, but we're in a library, so I'll promote the library. If you borrow the audiobook, Titus does the Bosch part of it. Yeah, it's very, very good. Uh, we got time for one more question here. Oh, man, i got to be a bad guy. Uh, in the, right there. Yes, you. Um, yeah, I pretty much have input on everything, and... Um, but you know, it's it's about money. When I write a scene in a book, it, I don't ever think about uh, you know how much would it cost to film this. Like I, uh, <laughs> my last year's book, I had a scene where um, these guys tried to throw Bosch out of a plane, you know, and it was like a half a page. It took three days to shoot that, and it cost like I don't know, almost a million dollars, and it was like. <laughs> People are looking at me like, can you have a little more responsibility when you're writing these books? <laughs> so, but, uh, but, like, you know, so it was about money. So, like, we were adapting books from the 90s 
that were very 90s oriented, and Harry Bosch himself is a Vietnam veteran in the books, but it would cost a fortune to like put old cars on the streets and change everything. Um, so, you know, the orders from the people of the money were, um, we're shooting in contemporary LA. So that dictated a lot of changes, including reinventing uh, Bosch's history where he was a Gulf War veteran instead of Vietnam War. And there, that's a big social change. That's a significant change. And, you know, we, we, I think we did it pretty well. Um, but it, to me, that's like the biggest change we made. But there's been many others. And, um, you know, different characters or different races and things like that. And, uh, and all this stuff I was consulted on. And uh, I, don't, I don't regret any of it. Um, you know, it would have been nice to really set when we did Black Echo to set it in 1992, but it, it was unrealistic Hollywood-wise. Well, I just want to say, first off, it's wonderful that you guys were all able to come tonight. Obviously, we very much appreciate Michael being in here as well. These are this is a character and and books that obviously many people here have spent years and years with, and you know the whole. Everyone matters or no one does, you know, spending time with every single person here. I feel like everyone here feels like they matter just a little bit more. So thank you thank very you. much for joining us today. Thanks to everybody here. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 